Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and this month we're going to talk about privacy. Historically, we've always treated privacy, cybersecurity, and identity management, that's how your identity information is created and used, as three separate and distinct issues. We have a handful of federal laws that deal with identity and cybersecurity, primarily around health and financial information. Every state, the District of Columbia and our U.S. territories, have a data breach notice law that requires consumers to get an alert if their personal information is exposed in a cyber attack or just good old-fashioned dumpster diving. And we have a patchwork quilt of industry self-regulations and government regulations that address what kind of security is required to protect data that companies keep on their customers and prospects. But there is change in the wind, as they say. What started in the European Union in 2018 with the adoption of a single comprehensive data privacy and cybersecurity law has now spread to the United States. California has adopted many of the principles found in the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, and now the Commonwealth of Virginia has joined the club. There are a dozen other states that are considering new privacy laws that add rights for consumers, obligations for businesses, and fundamentally change the way we think about how we create, use, store, and protect personal information. Joining us today to talk about these issues is the ITRC's CEO, Eva Velasquez, and Ricky Davis, Senior Vice President of and Chief Privacy Officer of Synchrony, one of the leading financial services companies in the U.S. So thanks to both of you for being here today. Happy to be here. Thanks, James. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. So, Ricky, Chief Privacy Officer is a relatively new member of the C-Club or the C-Suite, and not many people may be familiar with that term. So what actually is the role of a Chief Privacy Officer, and what benefits does that bring to a company to be privacy-centric these days? That's a great question, James, and thank you for asking, and thanks for having me again. Um, the Basically, in, in, short, in short, I would characterize my role as the chief privacy officer, as the guardian of, you know, all of our obligations, both from a letter and a spirit perspective uh, with respect to privacy and data protection, uh, legal regimes and compliance obligations. Um, The CPO, to your point, was a relatively recent phenomenon in the industry generally, but specifically with respect to our business synchrony. Um, for a number of years, I served, I also am a lawyer, and I also served as basically our cybersecurity and privacy counsel uh, for the business, supporting our chief information security office, as well as many of our privacy-related functions and processes. It was really with the advent of the, to your point, the GDPR, where um, Synchrony began to kind of uh, look around and determine what was really needed from a comprehensive privacy and data protection uh, accountability standpoint within the organization. Uh, We evaluated the obligations under the GDPR. We determined, because uh, Synchrony is pretty much a U.S.-centric financial institution, that we had relatively limited nexus with Europe and the EEA, and consequently, the GDPR wasn't as, you know, big and 
issue for us as it was uh, for multinational institutions, uh, both financial and otherwise. Uh, but it was really, to your point, with the advent of the uh, the CCPA in California, uh, where you know we really took a much harder look at you know what our obligations would be, you know, with respect to California consumers, and specifically started to adopt a more holistic and enterprise wide view of um, how data was coming into our environment, how data was being used you know, what kind of transparency we were affording to uh, consumers uh, who share their information who, or whom we sourced information around and how that information was being shared with others, whether it's third parties, et cetera, because the, the CCPA, as I'm sure you're well aware, you know, has certain very specific rights uh, that are afforded to uh, both businesses and parties with whom they share that information. So as a consequence, uh, the privacy office was established within Synchrony, and I was, um, you know, kind of honored to be become the first uh, chief privacy officer for the business. Again, having uh, overall accountability for all privacy and data protection related um, obligations within the enterprise. That's a that's a that's a lot of responsibility uh, for for one person and one group. Um, Eve, I want to bring you into the conversation, just. You know, from from the, the the practical standpoint, you know, because we've always approached these topics of privacy and security and, and identity kind of independently. Um, they might cross over from time to time, but for the most part, we viewed them independently. And now we're, we're moving to a more holistic approach. What's been the practical effect for consumers, though, of that of keeping those things separate for all these years? Well, you know, first of all, I will say that. I'm glad to see that these things are coalescing because the practical effect on consumers has just been utter confusion. I mean, think about it. If you get 10 experts in a room talking about privacy, cybersecurity, ID management, you're going to get different definitions of what they actually are. And these are the experts. These are the people, you know, like the three of us, Mm -hmm. excuse me, who do this you know, on a daily basis and we're deep in the weeds. So you're, you know, your average man or woman on the street is at this point likely going to say, yes, privacy, that's important. Cybersecurity, sure, that's important. ID management, yeah, I think that's important. But that's really as far as the conversation can go. And I think as if if we are moving all of these things into one um, set of rules, regulations, and start the discussion. And I don't know what we're going to call it, but we do need to come up with a much better name um, where it, we're treating all of these things as the very holistic activities that they are. I mean, these everything is intertwined in this space. And I just think that people will be able to, one, better understand it. And two, I think they'll be more willing to dive in because it just won't you know, look so intimidating. I, yeah, we talk to people all the time. We just go, I don't have time for that. They're busy doing their jobs, which are not, you know, as privacy or cybersecurity experts and not necessarily interested in um, going to law school and getting a degree so that they can understand how this impacts their lives. And I think this will help us to just make it, you know, more more concrete and less of a concept for people and help them to better understand it. Um, Ricky, you know, we're talking about this in late April. 
Um, this podcast is going to air in mid-May, almost on the three-year anniversary of the GDPR. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so three years into that concept, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're beginning to see, you know, the effects of it, good and bad, because it's like everything else. There's always good things and, and things we wish we'd probably done differently. But the, right. the, cent- the central premise of the GDPR was basically um, privacy by design right. and security by default. And that's what that's what we brought over into the U.S. and now what you're seeing in California, New York through their their financial services regulations, right. and and Virginia now with their new privacy law, and that undoubtedly is going to keep going through the states. But what have we, from a practical standpoint, what have we learned um, through the operation of the GDPR that we can now take advantage of here in the U.S.? You know, that's a that's a great question, James. I I think that. Principally, um, I think what the GDPR has done um, globally and specifically in the U.S. is really it's heightened the focus and sensitivity around um, data and and really around, you know, the level of transparency that needs to be afforded to consumers uh, with respect to, you know, kind of what data is being shared, how the data is being used, whether it's being sourced directly from the from the consumer her or himself or from another another source and how the data is being used and and basically to afford consumers um, a level of control and insight into into that information again we talk about the three different areas privacy data protection security you know fraud and identity protection I, again all of those really coalesce uh, into one central theme that that was really, kind of percolated through the GDPR development and now the enforcement that we're seeing uh, is really about ensuring that there's the appropriate level level of clarity uh, and transparency and control around personal information uh, afforded to consumers. And to your point, that that data is appropriately and adequately protected. And ultimately, what it, it ultimately also boils down to, James, from my standpoint, and it's something, it's a recurring theme whether it was less so in the CCPA, but now with uh, the advent of the the new California law, the the CPRA, uh, as well as in Virginia, to your point, New York, Florida is on the cusp, and it's been discussed even from a federal uh, legislative standpoint, is this whole concept of minimizing the data. In other words, determining, you know, how much data do you actually need? What is the real reason uh, and there's a fundamental difference, just to digress for two seconds, between, in my opinion, and I've thought about this pretty deeply, between you know an entity with whom a consumer has shared and knows that they share that information for the purposes of providing some type of service or product, and there's clarity around why that data is is needed to provide that service, and when it's no longer needed that it is appropriately expunged or dealt with in, in some appropriate way. And then you have other entities, data brokers, aggregators, et cetera, that are just gathering from a monetization standpoint, this data. And I think quite frankly, James, that has really been kind of the trigger point, the tipping point, if you will, with an, a lot of this uh, regulation and legislation. It's really, in my humble opinion, not because I work for one of those institutions that's kind of on the right side of things, but it's really more, I don't understand, you know, why I'm getting these messages. I don't know why I'm getting this information. I don't know 
there was been, been a breach and I didn't even know that particular business had access to my information. Um, it's that transparency or controllership that I think we're starting to focus, you know, with laser being focused in the U.S. based on, you know, what happened with the with the GDPR and the onerous enforcement actions that that it affords. Yeah, the, the concept of informed consent is if, if as, as a consumer, if I know what you're doing with my data. Right. And I agreed that you can use it that way. That's a much better process for for everybody on both sides of that transaction, both for the consumer and <laughs> right. for for the business. Yeah. Um, Eva, what do you see as the benefits to consumers from having more transparency and more access? Um, you guys actually really touched on it, and you know, in one sense, it's it's opening the curtain so these folks can see what is actually being collected about them. And and businesses who weren't otherwise inclined will be forced to be more transparent and reevaluate, you know, their data collection and storage practices. Um, I think the, the piece that you didn't touch on was, yes, consumers, when they consent and they're doing business, they know that they have given that company access to their data. But what about the companies where they didn't know? They didn't realize that they actually... So it was either purchased or it's a, you know, a relationship with the other company that they did give them access to. And they agreed in those terms and conditions, which by the way, no one ever reads biggest lie on the internet. I have read and accept the terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. That's an, that's an entirely different podcast we won't go, <laughs> go into all of that. Um, but it, I also think that there's a huge benefit to, I go from taking this from the conceptual to the concrete. And when consumers can actually see how much data an organization or an entity has collected about them, that is eye-opening. We we just don't realize how much is out there about us and how granular it gets. Mm-hmm. And when they given that access and being able to see it and see the list and see all that information and say, oh my gosh, I had no idea you knew, um, you know, where my high school prom was held and what my date's name was, and that picture's awful. Then people will get more involved because they go, okay, this is a bridge too far. We know that that's happening right now, but just a lot of folks don't really understand how much data is being just hoovered up about them and then collected and mined and crunched. And having this access and being able to see that, I think is going to be a huge benefit to consumers. James, if I, if I could, before you, before you follow up on that, because I think it's a, a great point in terms of uh, either your point about not really having that, that line of sight and that transparency to kind of the, the extreme amount of data um, that in a lot of instances is used for the appropriate purpose, you know, uh, again, offering a financial uh, benefit service product, which is obviously the business that we're in. But your point about not having that insight is, is uh, I'm just going to digress for a second and, and talk about the CCPA. And James, you may be aware of this or maybe not. It's kind of it's a pretty interesting storyline. But uh, Alistair McTaggart, who is the basically the, the brainchild you know, the billionaire real estate developer in California, um, he was he really kind of uh, initiated the discussion around the ballot initiative that ultimately turned into the CCPA. And he's also the individual who didn't think the CCPA went far enough in terms of um, comparison to the GDPR and, and consequently 
we have this new CPRA law, which will become effective in 2023, which is, you know, substantively very similar and closely aligned to the GDPR. But the, but the point I want to make to your point, Eva, about not having that that insight is, you know, the, the way we understood it was that at some point in 2018, um, you know, Mr. McTaggart was having a conversation, I believe, with some friends from either Google or Microsoft somewhere out there in Silicon Valley. And at some point, the the conversation turned to, well, you know, uh, Alistar, you know, we, we have a bunch of information around you, or that's kind of what we do in terms of, you know, kind of use, utilizing that information. My understanding was he was flabbergasted and, you know, was, was really quite concerned about that, you know, gaining that insight. And consequently, that was the trigger point and what precipitated his move to galvanize a number of his friends and business colleagues uh, to start that ballot proposal and initiative that ultimately culminated in the CCPA. Yeah, it's it, which it is always surprising having having spent um, a significant part of my career in the data analytics and data management business. It always surprises people the amount of information that is available to them especially when you point out to a lot of that data is sourced these days by social media. It's things that you willingly right. give up when you post online. But yeah, but the, 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 the point though, for all of these conversations is it comes back down to this concept of, of informed consent. If I know you're doing it, I have a different point of view, but also this concept of data minimization. And I, I, I want to kind of end up on this, this, this concept of, you know, we've talked a little bit around is, you know, should we have a federal law where we we're, mm-hmm. we have some state laws, but we're mm-hmm. also seeing companies like Apple, you know, taking, taking a, a technical uh, product and a technical position and effectively imposing some of the things that would be in a federal or a state privacy law, but they're just doing it for their customers. And I'm specifically right. talking about, you know, removing the ability to have tracking cookies. So there's little pieces of code, those little snippets of code that allow advertisers to to know what you're looking at and how often you look at it and where you look at it. So those ads can follow you around the internet. Now for a business, it's very, it's, that's, a, that's a hard conversation to have internally because every business needs to market. Exactly. But, but on the flip side of that, every business needs to market in a way that respects their customers so what really is the best way to address this, 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 this inherent conflict between consumers want goods and services, businesses have them, need to find those customers, but we have to do it in a way that respects privacy. Is it state law? Is it federal law? Or is it an industry solution? Oh, pick me. Can I go first? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to go. Okay. <laughs> I promise I'll let you have the last no, word, Ricky. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record as a, as the advocate, um, but I think a lot of education uh, to the public is necessary to get them to understand. And we are currently doing this. You know, I go back to what Ricky said about, hey, don't, let's not forget about legitimate use cases. And when we do our privacy education, I talk very specifically about the fact that, hey, there are legitimate uses 
for gathering this data about you. And some of it is fraud analytics and fraud detection, and we don't want to stifle that. That's really important. So let's keep that in mind in all of these conversations when we're advocating for consumers that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, you know, you can never collect anything because there are legitimate use cases. But I do think that um, education of the public, not just the businesses, not just the the uh, lawmakers, though that's important, but we need to get the folks who who are the creators of this data and the identity credentials and those things, uh, having just enough of an understanding that um, here's the right amount, here's what is necessary to either provide the goods and services or to provide you with discounts. People love a good discount. They want to get some of those that marketing material. Um, And that's okay. But it's, you know, transparency and choices and understanding that you have a role in choosing um, how much a a certain organization is going to know about you, keep, collect, how they're going to use it, and, and then make your choice accordingly. I just, I think education is going to be key. Okay, Ricky, you get the last word. No, I and I'm, I'll be very brief. I, I completely agree with um, Eva's characterization. To answer your question specifically, as between the three uh, potential areas uh, to try to introduce this type of kind of mindset change, if you will, paradigm shift, I, I really think ultimately it should be industry. Um, because, you know, industry, you know, has the relationship with the consumer. Um, there needs to be, to your point, James, the appropriate balance um, between, you know, what is too much and what is the type of information uh, that's accessed its source for purposes of providing those benefits and services that you're right, even that the consumers want. I mean, you know, I, I take advantage of those things every time, you know, when, when I'm going down to a, a play and, you know, I get, you know, someone you kind of determines I'm going to be there and there's a discount on our, our local restaurant. I'd like to I, I mean, I want to hear about that. I think that's important. I think that, you know, when it when legislation and regulation needs to be introduced, it really needs to be introduced, in my opinion, James, to kind of the the far end of the spectrum. Those in the, those businesses that are, you know, again, monetizing information uh, that, you know, are brokering that information that are really just selling it willy nilly uh, without any focus on, you know, the use and, you know, ensuring to your point, Eva, that there's the appropriate level of transparency and and communication and education around that. Those are the quote unquote bad actors that I think uh, unfortunately legislation will have to have to address. Well, the good news for all of us, um, this is a conversation that's going to go on for years uh, as, as we work through this. And we do find that balance because there, there, and it is just that. One of the things that government does not do well is technology. It's hard to keep law in sync with where technology is, is let alone where it is going. So it, it, it is going to require a cooperative effort from everybody involved, um, industry, consumers, and government. And ultimately, we will have a, a, a good solution that everybody um, everybody can can not only live with, but can you know have the protections that they need along with all of the other benefits um, that everybody wants as well. So, um, Eva, Rick, thank you for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you, James. Thank you for having Happy me. Happy to really be appreciate here. It. 
Well, thank both of you again. And you can learn more about data privacy, cybersecurity, and other identity-related issues by visiting the ITRC's website at idtheftcenter.org and by listening to our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown. If you have questions about how to protect your personal information or if you believe you have been the victim of an identity crime or compromise, talk to one of our expert advisors on the phone, by live chat, or by email during normal business hours. Just visit idtheftcenter.org to get started. Be sure to join us next week for our weekly breach breakdown podcast and next month for another episode of the Fraudian Slip. Thanks for listening.